We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. Before we get into this week's episode, there's something I'd love you to give a try. We've just launched a new online streaming platform, Intelligence Squared Plus. It's packed with over 20 years of our debates and whether you want to tune in live and watch along and ask your questions or watch back on demand, everything is totally ad-free and there's endless hours of discussion to dive into. The usual price is £14.99 a month, but we want to give you, our podcast listeners, a special offer to give it a try. For 10 days only, we're offering a subscription for only £10 a month, and the offer ends at midnight GMT on Tuesday 20th December. Get it while you can. So if you want to join the Intelligence Squared Plus community, visit intelligencesquaredplus.com or click the link in the episode description to subscribe and use the discount code MONTH10 or ANNUAL10 to start watching today. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, we're looking at the weird and wonderful cultural and biological history of slime. And for those of you who don't love slime, we encourage you to keep listening for some great facts about the powers and potentials of this substance. Our host for the episode is journalist Amelia Tate, and Amelia is joined by science journalist Susanna Vedlik. Here's Amelia with more. Slimes and those who produce them bind our world together. Physically, it sits between a solid and a liquid, and culturally, it can provoke anything from disgust to delight. Today on the podcast, we're talking all about slime, what it is, how important it is to our natural world, and our cultural love-hate relationship with slime. I'm joined now by journalist and science writer Suzanne Viedlich, whose book Slime, A Natural History rigorously delves into this ubiquitous yet secretive substance. Suzanne, welcome to Intelligence Squared. I wanted to start by asking you how you first became interested in slime. I mean, you mentioned in the book um, that this first became a topic of interest for you about 20 years ago uh, when you read an article about snails in The New Scientist. I mean, what was it about that article that captured your attention and and how did it keep you kind of interested in slime uh, ever since? 
Yeah, it was, you know, sometimes it's just small things that get you interested. And, and then you end up 20 years later, having written a book <laughs> that took three years <laughs> to research. The thing about the article was that, first of all, I, I'm a biologist, but I had never before thought about slime. I mean, if it's like a real substance, something that you can describe, describe or that has functions. Uh, so that was the first surprise for me to, to read about it. And then in the article, it was just beautifully described how snails communicate via their slime trails, uh, that there are messages hidden in there, like contact ads. So males of some species, or maybe even all, I don't know. I mean, it hasn't been researched really, just in a few species. Uh, the males can read from a slime trail if it's a female who went there, um, if she's healthy, has parasites, which direction she went, the species, stuff like that. So I thought at that moment, like almost 20 years ago, that there have to be more interesting slimes, right? It can't be that just snails produce fascinating slime and uh, our mucus is, is really boring. And that stayed with me, you know, like, like journalists, you, you rip the article out, keep it, and there's like dozens <laughs> of them. Yeah, and in the end, I ended mm -hmm. up choosing that topic. And that is definitely what you get a sense of from the book, that, that slime is everywhere and it's a substance involved in everything from sickness and sex to death and life. And I think you even wrote, in all my years of researching this fascinating material, I've yet to encounter a slime-free creature. Um, so your thesis was right. But I'm, I'm wondering, and this is a little bit of a mean question because I know that repeatedly in the book you say um, that slime does defy definition, but can you just define it for the listeners? I mean, what makes a slime a slime to you? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. <laughs> um, that uh, that I'm still uh, working. I'm still working on the answer. Uh, I can first say what isn't a slime for me, or what what it, what the slimes are that I'm not interested in. So there's there's mm -hmm. one category of slime, of course, that's just a product of decay. So if a body, an organism decays, uh, it will dissolve, and then of course by going from solid to liquid, it will pass through a slimy phase. But that's just disorder. The cells break open, the tissues uh, disintegrate, but that's not a slime that does anything. And then, of course, we all know there are the toy slimes. They're really fun, but again, they don't really do anything. So that's not my kind of slime as well. What I'm interested in, that's, that's the slimes that organisms, all organisms, microbes, plants, animals, humans, obviously, maybe even aliens, <laughs> produce. Um, and that's surprisingly complex material that you can describe. And all these slimes on a physical level are, are similar. They're hydrogels. That means they consist mostly of water that's, that's bound by molecules. And that what, what we call a slime, really a material that has that, that characteristic texture and behavior, you know, that it's slow dripping, it's, it's stickiness. And, and that comes from that inner structure. And that's, that's the slime I'm mm -hmm. interested in. And I just want to contrast that with, with how the Oxford Dictionary defines slime, which is an unpleasantly thick and slippery liquid substance. Um, I'm just interested in, in what you think about the word unpleasant there, whether that's a fair assessment. And I suppose what you've learned uh, when researching and writing the book about why exactly so many of us do seem to have this sort of innate uh, disgust towards slime. I mean, is it innate or is that a version learned? It's learned, really. I mean... Of course, um, disgust is like is, is a fundamental emotion, and we're all equipped to to be disgusted. So right, when we're born, we have that ability. But uh, the fascinating thing about that emotion is that as kids, we only learn what we should be disgusted by, and and that's I mean it makes sense because uh, risks can change, and disgust is supposed to keep us away from from pathogens and and parasites, and and. 
like I said, the risk can change. So you have to learn what is a danger to you now as compared to maybe people in, in medieval times. And the, the problem for our disgust system, of course, is that, that we can't see microbes. Usually we can't see a parasite. So how can you protect yourself? And I think that's why we're so usually so disgusted by slime or bad smells, for example. They're like a, a symptom of contaminations. But now, of course, in, I think we go overboard. Because like, like you said in the dictionary, why unpleasant? It's, it's, so, it's so fascinating to see that people are so disgusted by this stuff. If, if you see in the media, if there are articles on, let's say, uh, snails and the slime and what you do, I mean, uh, like maybe a face cream and stuff like that, it will usually always begin, please reader, stay with me. I know it's gross, but it's really interesting. And I think that slime is, mm. is like the only and ubiquitous and essential material that gets that kind of treatment so I mean what about your own relationship with slime then I mean did you used to have that disgust reaction have you overcome it I mean you wrote in the book about kind of touching a frog when you were a child I mean was it something that you never really felt disgusted by or has your relationship changed it has changed because after you know by now it's probably six years or so that I've worked extensively on slime so I'm not as disgusted <laughs> before because that, that's that's it's always the same, you know, you, you might fear something or you might be disgusted by thump, something and then you learn more about it and then it's fascinating to you. And then, of course, that disgust goes away, at least to some extent. Um, but I recently learned that I'm not as hardened as I thought because uh, I got a request by a choreographer, an Austrian choreographer who did a, a show uh, like on stage on slime with just performers, nude, playing and engaging with tons of slime. And uh, I was in Singapore at the time, so I couldn't couldn't really go to the show. But she sent me clips, and it was so hard for me to uh, to even watch the thing for a few minutes because those people so vulnerable to me without clothes, and they have the audience in their you know in their winter clothing just standing around, and that slime so much slime. So yeah, I still have wow. to work on that. <laughs> what kind of slime? Yeah, she told me that they had um, to yeah to get the right recipe. It took like forever to develop it oh my because gosh. it dries out so fast. <laughs> if you have real slime, there's um. so much water in there that uh, it will dry out right away, and then of course it loses it loses the sliminess. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. that that was interesting <laughs> because I thought ah not not a problem for me. <laughs> but then okay, right, just small doses, please. <laughs> A step too yeah. far, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, what about your book's place then? I mean, I'm just wondering, you use this nice phrase in chapter three, um, rehabilitate slime. So I'm wondering if that's sort of a personal aim for you with the book. Um, and do you hope that your book will help other people kind of overcome this this disgust that they feel? Yeah, absolutely. Like when I started out, at first I didn't know, would there be enough material to write a book? And then I thought, okay, there's some stuff there. It will be something like funny science, Know, a few animal snails and maybe hagfish and stuff like that and then a, a bit of science and in the end there was so much stuff it was like a mountain that I didn't even know how to how to order you know if all organisms from the tiniest microbe to humans need slime and produce slimes usually more than one kind of slime and they've probably done so from the beginning right from the beginning but where do you even begin I mean uh, what's what's the threat that you can follow what's the narrative if you say it's everywhere and there's so much slime biological slime uh, even in the environment that it glues some habitats together so it's 
it's it's the story of of, cli of climate crisis. If we lose this climate, those habitats might change, for example. Um, and all our illnesses, we have so many, so much slime in our body, <laughs> even if you can't see it, um, that everything from infections to cancer, that's that's all a slime story. And I think everyone who's interested in how the human body works or is interested in animals or nature or climate change should know about that. It's just a really important aspect. And then that whole disgust angle. So that that's maybe right now the most important question to me. What else don't we see because we're too disgusted to look? And that's actually where I work on right now, things like parasites. More than half of all animals, maybe up to 80% of all animals are parasites or have parasitic stages in their life. So that's not an exception. It's, it's more like the rule. And still... We we're treating them that like a phenomenon that we should get rid of. Or snakes. Yeah, I work a lot of uh, snakes. It's the same. They're feared. Also have them in mythologies and stuff like that. But we we dismiss their ecological roles, and that's really what what came from from the slime story. What else do I not see? It's it's so hard to look if you don't know <laughs> where where are my blind spots. Definitely, yeah. And I do think the book does a good job of kind of convincing you that, you know, if we do pay attention to more slime, there are endless potential uses um, for slime. I really like the example of the Navy trying to use hagfish slime to slow down enemy boats, or you wrote about um, using animal slimes to make new kinds of glue um, that could work on damp surfaces or underwater or in surgeries. I mean, is there one potential use of slime that excites you the most? It's actually the glues. I mean, I come from the story of the, of the mm -hmm. snail slime and the glues. I mean, that that's so easy to understand, you know, um, that we all know that if you have like a bandaid on your finger and you take a shower, it will usually fall off because our glues, either they're not strong enough or they're toxic. And then you just take any ordinary, the most boring limpet, but also sea stars and all kinds of mussels, all kinds of creatures I mean, they don't have a problem um, to just um, stick themselves to some substrate uh, underwater. And then they just move on again. They don't have a problem at all. Their glues are so much better. And that's, that's all slime. So it would be great if we could replicate those slimes uh, as glues because they're obviously environmentally <laughs> friendly um, and they, they work underwater perfectly. And Many biological slimes, they can even, if, if you use them as glues, they can dry out and then you just add some water and then they work again. That's another thing that our glues, our conventional glues can't do. So that's one easy to describe, but obviously hard to replicate example. And how far along in that process do you know um, we are in being able to replicate that? I mean, is it still sort of understudied, I suppose? Yeah, because I, I think that the funding obviously is a problem because, yeah, companies would, would love to, to, to use a glue, a ready-made biologically inspired glue. But first, the researchers have to produce a thing to, to make it so they can, you can sell it. And, and that's just a really long way to go. But I think, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's like a discipline that's expanding already. And I think there's a lot more to come in the future because we live in, in, a, in a world that's glued, like every piece of furniture, the, the floors, even clothing, shoes, books. There's glue in there somewhere. And that's often the one reason why we can't recycle those things. So if we could mm -hmm. change the glues, that would be like a major step uh, towards like even a circular economy. Yeah, because we've touched a little bit on, on climate change and the changing environment. And I was interested in the ways in which I suppose that slime could potentially uh, help and hinder 
um, our climate change predicament. I mean, you wrote about the fact that slimes could trap microplastics, um, which could be dangerous or beneficial, depending on, on how they were put to use. Um, and you also write that a changing climate will it will itself increase slime production in the oceans, potentially. Um, I know it's a very big question, but could we talk a little bit about, about slime's role in our changing environment and what you kind of foresee? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a huge story. There's not enough research, really not enough. Um, so, I mean, the, the first, for me, at least mind-blowing thing was when I found out that slime is everywhere in the environment, even in deserts. I mean, we had just this week, I think it was like the International Day of, of Soils. So that's where slime as well plays a role in, in, in deserts and arid areas. There are microbes uh, that settle there on the ground and they, they're like the base for communities of, of tiny, tiny organisms. You often you can't even see them. Um, they're called biological soil crusts. And they produce slime that glues together like the surface, the particles of, of the sand or whatever is there. And without those communities, there's much more erosion. And that's obviously a huge problem. And then the ocean, sorry, that's bad news. That's really like a slime soup. <laughs> so slime's everywhere. Uh, even on the surface, again, you can't see it. It's like a thin skin of slime that microbes produce. And that's, since it's the interface between the atmosphere and the ocean, let's say all the, the, the oxygen that gets produced in the ocean has to pass through the slime layer. And again, all the CO2 that the ocean takes up from the atmosphere, which of course is, uh, is a benefit or it slows down uh, climate change. Um, again, every single molecule of that has to pass through the interface. And now let's say, of course, the planet is getting warmer, the ocean is getting warmer. So those microbes or many microbes are happier if it's warmer, they might produce more slime. That interface might get thicker. What happens and no one really knows. Would all those passages slow down or they could even, for some chemical reaction, um, speed up? No one really knows what happens, but this is, we're talking about two thirds of the surface of the, of the planet. This is really important and we have to know that. Well, I mean, how does that make you feel then? I mean, do you feel optimistic now that you've written this book that people might pay more attention to slimes and, and their important role? Or are you a little bit pessimistic and worried about the way in which things are going? Um, both really. I mean, I, I am pessimistic because in part, the reaction to the book has been so bad. So I never expected that in Germany, for example, my publisher told me that we had, it seems, many, many um, booksellers who refused to stock the shops with the book because, I quote, the topic is too disgusting. And this this is a first. Uh, and I mean, we all know you, you can you get all kinds of books in, in bookshops, obviously. I mean, true crime and Fifty Shades, everything. But a, a popular science book <laughs> on slime that tries to show that it isn't as gross as you thought the material, that's the bridge that's too far and you refuse to cross. I mean, that's just amazing. And I even have relatives, you know, people who like me <laughs> that's what they, they would love to to read books written by me but not that topic they say they can't even crack it open it's so disgusting to them just to see the bird slime so i think we have really far way to go to normalize that behavior i'm not saying like like I explained before often of course slime is contaminated there can be microbes in there so if you see a strange slime don't touch it don't eat it <laughs> but i mean we're allowed to and we should think about it but what makes me optimistic is that I see that 
the research in, in that area is really, it's like, it's exploding. So when I wrote uh, like the, the original book in German, I felt that comfortably I could cover all the important slime aspects. And then for the UK edition, I already had to update parts of it because so much was happening. And I felt that, okay, there shouldn't be much more because I, I couldn't fit it in the book anymore. And now there's way too much. There's so much happening, like even the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. Um, if you remember that Carolyn um, Bertosi was one of the recipients and she got it for her work to, that it's now possible to, to observe sugars in the cell that how, how they react and where they go. And then in the end, they end up on, on the surface of on the cell, on the outside. And that's actually a slimy barrier. So that's that, that's a good sign. But yeah, so oh, read my book, <laughs> everyone. <laughs> <laughs> read the book, everybody. And stock the book, bookshops. No, that's amazed me that, you know, people think it's too disgusting to, to, to stock or to crack open. I mean, I suppose this that leads nicely onto the fact that you know, the book isn't just about the science of slime. You do have a lot about pop culture in there um, and the ways in which slime has been represented in, in art and literature through the years. I mean, you, you trace it from H.P. Lovecraft stories to Netflix's Stranger Things more recently. Why do you think slime has captured popular imagination in this way for so long? You know, this association with monsters and aliens and creepy crawlies, is that part of the reason that we have this disgust response? Yeah, I think the the one really, in a sense, uh, strengthens the other aspect. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's it's a relationship. I think, or it's, yeah, it's it's really my theory that uh, we've, in a sense, outsourced slimes from our everyday life. Of course, uh, we don't care for our sick; they're in hospitals. We uh, just throw away uh, moldy food, usually, at least in Western societies. Uh, we don't have to eat it. Maybe even, yeah, sex is probably the only the, the only part of our uh, life where uh, slime is important or can be important. Uh, but then, of course, afterwards, yeah, it's, it's a bit embarrassing. Let's not talk about it. And I think that's why we, uh, our disgust, which is probably a healthy reaction to slime, is so over the top now. There's no check in our everyday life. If you think back maybe 150 years ago, when everyone just threw their garbage in the street and it was it was just slimy stuff lying around and uh, no sanitation, no hospitals, then you had to deal with slime so you couldn't be that disgusted by it. You will not starve as long as there's food there and if it's it's moldy and slimy then you will eat it obviously and and if you don't have to do this then your uh, your disgust is just freewheeling so i think yeah at the moment at least in our societies it's it's over the top which makes it just a great like a sign for monsters you you see something on on the screen that's slimy and you know that's the villain that's the monster it's just so easy and it's so cheap and it works all the time uh, so at least that's my theory why all the modern monsters are slimy while the dragons of old and witches or i mean nowadays they, they would be slobbering right they would like the alien like a huge it's, it's like a dragon but it's slimy on the outside uh, which wouldn't really work uh, in real life um the, the drying out part um, but the dragons were all scaly and dry because maybe even people wouldn't have known why they should why slime, yeah, slime is just, if it's uh, like an everyday um, part of your life, then uh, why be disgusted by it? You can't afford it really. So yeah, being disgusted by slime is a luxury. Right, <laughs> that's a great way to put it. So I mean, when you were tracing these depictions of slime, I mean, when did it start then? This association with with monsters and horror. I'm not sure I can um, pinpoint like an exact date, but you see maybe 
from the 50s onwards with the blob, you know, that alien slime that's that's trying to eat Steve McQueen and uh, every other earthling um, coming its way. And then we have this, like the, the real era of slime probably was the 80s with Ghostbusters and movies and like the fly. That's all so slimy. Um, and then I think it went away for a bit. Um, there's one theory that um, was um, after 9-11 when we got all those, you know, movies on terrorists and stuff like that. So a whole different angle in a sense and a whole different fear but then the slime came back of course so we have the new ghostbusters now we have stranger things the expanse it's all slimy <laughs> did you know that wherever you are in the world you can stream live intelligence squared debates and discussions we've just launched a new online streaming service called intelligence square plus where you can tune in to all our upcoming events, ask your questions, vote on motions, and also watch back all our previous events on demand wherever you want. The usual price is $14.99 a month, but for you, our podcast listeners, for just 10 days, we've got a special introductory offer of £10 per month. Visit intelligencesquareplus.com or click the link in our description and use the code MONTH10 or ANNUAL10 to start watching. Offer ends at midnight GMT on Tuesday 20th of December, so subscribe today and don't miss out. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
And what about, I mean, you mentioned it's not your area of expertise, but slime is having a little bit of a renaissance with, you know, as a children's toy in these YouTube videos. Um, and there's even a Slumu Institute that hosts different slime exhibitions around the world. I mean, what do you think it is about these slimes that are more delightful than disgusting? Is it just that they're kind of brightly colored? Yeah, uh, I think that that's one reason. And then also, if you know how it's been made, a slime that you know, I mean, we, we all can handle raw eggs, but if you found found it somewhere in your kitchen you didn't know what it is it would be like the most disgusting thing ever so if it's a slime that maybe you created yourself or you know what it's made from or it's colorful so it doesn't look too biological then i think it's it's fine and we we react to the sliminess we react to the texture and it can go both ways it's it's very sensual in, in both cases, either it's just a strong disgust reaction or you just step back and you can't touch it anymore or you indulge in it. Well, how do you feel then about this kind of mini slime renaissance? I mean, have you ever played with a, a kid's toy slime? As a kid, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, <laughs> yeah, not recently, yeah, not, not, not recently, not really. But I, I think uh-huh. if I ever yeah, go back to, to New York, that I would definitely try the experience in this just just to know how it is. You know, like, like I told you about mm. the choreographer at the show. Um, the, it's the same in institute. You can have slime being poured in your buckets and buckets of it. So wow. who knows? Um, yeah, it might be really, uh, yeah, a good experience. Well, you'll have to let us know if you find out. <laughs> Going back to sort of history then, I mean, I really loved um, the story of Patricia Highsmith in the book, who was just such an interesting character who kept hundreds of pet snails and sometimes took them to dinner um, in her handbag. Did you have an affinity with any particular person that you introduced the reader to or a kind of favourite quote-unquote character in, in the book? Um, yeah, that's uh, Patricia, of, uh, Patricia, of course, uh, which I expected her to be so engaged with the snails because she wanted to shock. You know, she was this rather harsh character, uh, not an easy person, Um but uh, now I think that we have some sort of woman or women and man divide that I also see in the reactions to the book. So I have a lot of of male reviews of the book who will write, you know, long reviews, not criticizing the book, but to me it reads like they're keeping it at a distance so it's one anecdote after the other and then there are women who are usually like oh my god that's brilliant <laughs> and let's talk about the sex part and that I haven't seen a single review by, by a man written who engages with the are women really the slimier sex uh, things like that you know so I think yeah Patricia f- fascinating me um, but now I think it's like it's like a bigger part all there are have been quite a few artists who contacted me to cooperate on some projects and it's all been women well could you just explain for the listener what you mean by women as the slimier sex yeah that has a really long history that slime yeah being something like a label that you put on people to marginalize them of course there has been that uh, theory that we are made up of different humorous slime being one among them um but men and women the same but still there is always has been like a dark undercurrent of men influential men proposing the idea that women are just slimier which means a bit more disgusting weaker and something that undermines your manly resolve so to speak (laughs) so uh, you have to you have to uh, be cautious beware women (laughs) That, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing 
And could you explain for the listener just a little bit more about Patricia Highsmith? Because I realised I just jumped right into that. I mean, you wrote about uh, the snail as a symbol of transgressive female sexuality. So could you explain what Patricia wrote about as well as uh, keeping keeping all those snails? <laughs> yeah, she has uh, a few stories uh, where snails uh, feature rather prominently. And it seems, at least I've read in her biography, um, that she was fascinating by the very elaborate sex life that snails can have for hours going on and then producing a lot of slime, um, things like that. And she she uses that in her books to have people be men in that case, being fascinated by the snails, keeping snails or trying to research the snails. And of course, spoiler alert, it all <laughs> ends badly, really badly, <laughs> thanks to the snails. <laughs> right. So not not to jump around too much, it's just that there is so much in the book. Um, and this, as you say, slime is so ubiquitous. So I mean, I'd love to start talking about slime's ubiquity in the body, um, which we sort of touched upon earlier, and how it can both act as a sort of protective barrier that kind of helps keep harmful germs away. But we also spoke a little bit earlier about its role in illness. And you write about cystic fibrosis and how too much mucus in the body can be a bad thing. Tell me about it. Tell me about slime in, in the human body. Yeah, that's uh, that to me um, was really uh, a revelation. We all know that we have mucus like in, in the airways or, or in, in the gut, things like that. Uh, we're aware of that. And of course, uh, a runny nose when you have a cold will show you that that mucus is there. But um, the interesting thing is that uh, that's just one kind of hydrogel that we have in the body, one kind of slimy substance. There are three more. Uh, one has the most boring name ever, the connective tissue, <laughs> but it's really called the extracellular matrix. I mean, without that, that kind of hydrogel, we would just fall apart just a heap of cells that it, it's like a tissue glue it keeps us literally together but it's it's more important than that because like all the hydrogels that we have in the body they are the borders between like uh, around the cell like we mentioned uh, when it came to the Nobel Prize every single cell has a border of slime on the outside the tissues have it and like then of course all our surfaces on the inside are all coated in slime and these borders I think have the trickier job than like the skin. Our skin is supposed to keep everything out and to keep the water in. I mean, that's a hard enough job, but it's it's rather clear cut. But if you take, like, for example, the mucus uh, in, in, in the intestines, in the colon, it's supposed to let nutrients in, but to also to keep microbes out and also to uh, accommodate the microbes that are supposed to live there, that we need, the microbiome. So that's a really, really complex job for stuff that's that's just water with a bit more you know water plus upgraded water and and that's what our hydrogels do uh, even the the connective tissue of course it's the tissue glue but for example it's supposed to keep uh, cancer cells in so that they don't uh, get to migrate but then again cancer cells manipulate that slimy coat on their outside so that it says uh, I'm just a regular cell, uh, don't do anything to me, I'm allowed to leave my tissue, uh, things like that. So there's always, slime is always the interface and uh, we need to understand it much better because probably every single kind of disease, like from infection to inflammation to um, like all those um, chronic gut diseases that we now have and that are on the rise, it's all, there's all a slime somewhere in there. Why is human slime, slime in the human body, 
internal then as opposed to a snail who has kind of external slime i think that it has a lot to do with the with the transition that life made going from the water um, to land where you, you just simply you simply can't have your slimes on the outside because it would dry out immediately or you would lose too much water you couldn't just uh, lose like liters and liters hundreds of liters every day um, so if, if you look in the sea, of course, you have jellyfish and fish and they're all slimy, usually on the outside because uh, the, the medium is not a problem. And then you have um, organisms some living on, on the edge like amphibians, frogs, that they have um, to stay moist at least or they would dry out, obviously. And then come the reptiles with their scales. They already keep the water in so they can even live in the desert everywhere. And our skin does, does the same job. So our eyes are really the only open slime surface that we have. And even there, there is, of course, it's a slimy layer, but even there are lipids like a fatty layer on top just to keep the water in. Even that tiny surface obviously would be too much uh, to, to have the slime open. So, I mean, speaking of the transition from water to land, I mean, a big part of the book is the ways in which different scientists throughout history have kind of tried to identify slime as a source of life, as the source of all life. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about that and how the idea was kind of eventually disproved? Yeah, I think um, that's the flip side of our disgust. So when we look at slime, it's just, it's a formless blob and it's somewhat, it, it's threatening. You, don't, you really don't know. Is it just dripping? Uh, or is it alive already? <laughs> is it crawling or, or tripping? Uh, so that, that seems like a, a threat here to us. Um, but uh, you have people like Ernst Haeckel, the, the German evolutionary biologist, a contemporary of Darwin, who was trying really hard to find uh, another source of life since God wasn't an option anymore. And he came up with the idea that, that slime could be like the source of all life. Because he that, that, that amorphous blob, he saw that as... As, as potential, you know, um, it's not yet alive, but it could be. So he came up with the idea um, that the whole seafloor, at least large part of it, of it were uh, covered in slime, like slightly pulsing slime um, that would, yeah, just create life and, and create new species. And um, he, he could uh, come up with the idea because there wasn't any way for him to, to prove or disprove it. But of course, later on to, in his lifetime, um, there were expeditions like the Challenger expedition 150 years ago. Uh, they tried to, um, to prove that there was this primeval slime. And yeah, all the samples came up empty. And only when they tried to conserve that seawater and poured the alcohol in it, oh yeah, Eureka, there was slime in there, but of course it was obvious and it wasn't a real slime, just an artifact. So unfortunately, no no slime on the... Yeah, there is slime on the seafloor, but life doesn't come from there. Did you find yourself having an affinity with these sorts of characters who were so keen to kind of prove this idea about primordial slime? I mean, was it an idea that you found yourself drawn to having written and, and worked with slime for six years? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, just the mindset that they were able to look at slime and say, oh my God, this is just this fascinating material between dead matter and life. Uh, and, and they just saw potential, so much potential. And for us, it's just, oh, that's gross. It's it's decay. That that alone was so fascinating to me. And yeah, I'm. I think I'm I'm coming around to uh, to that view. <laughs> and what about then the universe? Let's zoom out. We have mentioned aliens a few times, but what about slimes 
potential role in the universe and if aliens were out there would you imagine that they were indeed slimy yeah i, I talked to a nasa scientist about that uh who's who studies alien life or, or he's trying like many others are uh, to come up with ways to prove if there are aliens out there or some alien life, uh, what would it look like and how would we recognize it? And so, I mean, this this is just uh, a line of thought that most of the time life on Earth for uh, billions of years uh, before there were high, what we call higher organisms, there were just microbes, nothing but microbes. And so it's something to think about uh, alien life in all probability it would be something like that singular cells in a sense simple life and microbes of course are the masses of slime they build like the most most amazing um, slime uh, creations and so you think okay if they do it here and if they protect themselves by hiding in slime maybe in underground caves even if it's like a hostile environment they can survive if there's enough slime that could be the same for alien life and that's why they study microbes here in like in, in hot springs or those caves um, and their slimes because this is just a way that alien life might survive as well. Because if, if it comes down to how do you create slime, it's, it's cheap. It's water. You need water and then you need some sort to bind, some sort of molecule to bind that water. And that could be, that could exist on other planets as well. Well, we'll have to. We'll all have to wait and see. Frankly, <laughs> the answer is unanswered. Perhaps slime too. You you can do a sequel book uh, when alien life is discovered. So I really wanted to ask you as a final question. I'm just so interested in in the field work that you did for the book. I mean, early on, you write about sticking your hands into these troughs of hagfish um, and these slimy hagfish, obviously, um, and hunting French marshlands for sticky plants and things. I mean, what was your favorite bit of, of field work that you did for the book or, or the weirdest place that your research took you? That, that was really the hackfish. I mean, you can't top mm. hackfish when it comes to slime. Uh, first <laughs> of all, they do look like alien creatures. So they have like four <laughs> rows of teeth and, and, and the mouth the mouth <laughs> um, is like upright in their face. And they have those tentacle things. And they produce like the most amazing uh, slime. It's, it's, it's like it's more like a textile. And uh, I went to California where they pulled them up from the ocean to, to sell them to, to South Korea where they're, they're being eaten. Um, and they keep them in containers and they have to replace the water all the time because the hackfish are stressed and they immediately turn the water to slime. And you, you can pull that slime up. It's, it's so heavy and it sticks to your hands. You can't wash it off. So they gave me then a towel that was already stiff with all the slime and you have to, to rub it off. It hurts <laughs> to get rid of it. But still, it's like the most amazing thing. And yeah, you mentioned um, that the US Navy uh, has, or at least had, I'm not sure um, what, what's the situation right now. They tried to use it um, to, to the hack for slime to stop boats. You know, if, if the, the sea around a boat turns to slime, that then they had, that, that stopped in their tracks. But there are other scientists who try to turn that into textiles. Again, bio-friendly um, textiles that, that you can use. And uh, I, I'd love to try that. Well, thank you so much for your time, Suzanne. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much. I love talking about slime. I don't know. I'm not sure if you know this, but it's, yeah, it's a great subset. Uh, I really love it. That was Suzanne Viedlich, author of Slime and Natural History, translated by Aicha Chukoglu, which is available now. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I've been Amelia Tate. Thanks for joining us.